0: What's going on everybody? This is the Growing Up Italian Podcast. I'm your host Rocco and I am here with the legendary voice of the LA Galaxy, Joe Tutino. Joe, it's finally nice to put a face to it. And uh, Well thank you. I, I don't know about being legendary but thank you. That's nice. I mean your your voice is iconic. I feel like everybody in the, the soccer, the culture industry has heard it before. So. It's great to finally connect with you, you know, be able to see you face to face. We met on Clubhouse randomly. I forgot what room it was. I think it was like a Juve inter recap discussion. And then that's U- what it was.
1: That's exactly what it was. I wanted to see how, you know, people felt about the match. And unfortunately, I had not seen the entire match. So I was kind of thumbing through the highlights at the time you guys were talking about it and uh, wasn't very pretty. Uh, obviously, uh, but yesterday's match was was even more ugly. And watching Napoli against Atalanta, that was rough to watch. Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. And I, I love that you still like keep in touch with the Uh Obviously, you work for the MLS, and you know we're gonna get into that whole aspect sure. and what you're doing there. But you know, give give the viewers a solid introduction.
1: Well, uh, my, my name is Joe Tutino. I'm a first generation Italian American. Uh, in San Diego, California, that's where my parents migrated to in fact my my father migrated here first uh, and then um, uh, met my aunt and uncle who migrated after him on my mom's side and my father saw a picture of my mom and uh, basically received some help from my aunt writing letters back to my mom and uh, ended up marrying her bringing her here and and all of a sudden we, we were in San Diego. my dad was a fisherman to start and uh, ended up his career as a a cement finisher, so we're we're blue collar through and through, and uh, we still speak Italian at my mom's house. My father, unfortunately, is no longer with us, uh, but uh, that's life these days, unfortunately. And we we're we're still close. Everybody's here in San Diego, both my brothers and and their kids, and and uh, aunts and uncles and cousins. So we all just kind of made our way here.
0: Yeah, I love that story, especially the way your parents met. I feel like that was such an old school way and very well-mannered, well-brought up, well-educated and uh you know you don't hear stories like that anymore. You know writing love letters or like oh I would love yeah. to, to know so and so, you know it was different back in the day so it's it's amazing. You see- write
1: a love letter today they'll put you on blast and they'll ruin your life.
0: <laughs> it's like you get screenshot and forget it.
1: <laughs> it's over. It's, it's over. You can't you can't court or anything like that anymore. It's it's a different world today. Uh but but certainly I feel fortunate like you to I'm sure uh Growing up in an Italian household with the uh, uh, Italian uh, traditions, uh, homemade bread, homemade cookies, everything that uh, they brought from Italy stayed in that vacuum, and we grew up around it and and you know our friends and neighbors, uh the Americans uh, they loved coming over and eating my mom's cookies all the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that you said that because you know there's nothing more important to us than you know meeting people, relating to people with all these things. I'm just curious to how your family wound up in you know San Diego. Like what
1: made them go that route instead of the East Coast, you know what I mean? Was there any- well, a couple a couple of things happened. my My father's uncle was in the United States um, in the well, before the, before the depression. And he was actually in Milwaukee. And when the depression hit, many people lost everything, somewhat like what's happening right now, but at that time, the depression, he, he lost everything, and they just picked up and they went to the farthest southwest corner of the United states. and and he was in construction. At the time, and, and my father was in Italy as a child. And unfortunately, for my dad during World War II, his father was killed. And so, my father was 11 years old. Uh, he had his mom, he had his uh, older sister, and he had his baby sister uh, to care for him at 11 years old. And they had to go off and work for uh, grain or whatever and bring that back to his mom. And she would, you know, sell it. And that's how they would go on up, go, you know, live their life at that time. Right. Uh, my grandmother was a seamstress, and so she did her work. My grandfather, from what I understand, was a painter, um, wow. similar to frescoes. So there are ceilings and homes and things like that in Sicily that I believe still have some of his work. That's so awesome. that's awesome. Um, but what happened was my my my, uh, my uncle had uh, basically sponsored by my, my father and his sister and uh, and the little baby, uh, my aunt Rose to come over, and they came through Ellis Island, 1953, and by train came to San Diego and tried to set up in Little Italy here in San Diego, and we had uh, a very large fishing fleet here, it was the, the largest in the Pacific, if not one of the largest in the world at the time, for tuna. and we had all the canneries here in San Diego at the time, Chicken of the Sea, Star Kiss, Van Camps, they were all here in San Diego, and so my father, who was fishing in Italy as he got older, and he came over, he was 21 years old, um continue to fish here in san diego and so on one side i don't know if you've ever been to san diego there is little italy on one side of the bay and the other side is a point loma where all the portuguese are so you had the portuguese and the italians with the fishing boats and, (laughs) and that's how it worked and and so and so my father he you know he lived in little italy which was very large at the time here in san diego and it's still pretty good um, but uh, everybody just lived in Little Italy here in San Diego, and that's how it was for the Italians until the city began to grow up, and unfortunately for for that part of town, um, the 5 freeway, the Interstate 5, had to go through there, and many of them scattered, but Little Italy's still going strong here for us. Good, but nice. that's That's kind of the roundabout story of how we ended up in Southern California, the furthest southwest corner of the United States.
0: You know, I think it goes for a lot of cultures when they first migrate, but especially for Italians, they stick together, you know what I mean? So if they are going somewhere, they're going to form an Italian community elsewhere, whether it be New York, Pittsburgh, Philly, uh, you know, uh, New Jersey, Chicago, San Francisco, San Diego, you know, they form all these Italian communities and they try and hold on to it as best as they can, you know? And it's part of the reason why we started this page to hold on to those values because you know a lot of these neighborhoods are disintegrating and they're you know changing for better for worse whatever it may be but the italian communities are not as uh as seen
1: as much as they used to be so you know it's great they're not, as, they're not as connected that's right you're Absolutely. right they're not we're not we are not as connected as we used to be probably when my brothers were, were young uh i came a little bit later and uh my parents already had moved to the home where they they raised our family but when my, both, my older brothers were born, they were born in Little Italy, running around there. And, and in fact, they spoke Italian first. I spoke Italian first, but I also uh, spoke English well enough to get along. So I was already kind of right. moving along. Uh, whereas my brothers kind of struggled a little bit with English because it was all Italian for them all the time.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. And, and I think that's kind of how it was for me growing up. Italian was my first language. So it, it's great seeing the similarities between us two. But let's, let's start talking about you, Joe. Uh, and your whole broadcasting experience, and and all that old industry. When did you start broadcasting?
1: I started in the business in nineteen eighty nine. Um, basically, soccer led me to. That forty three years ago. Broadcasting. Forty two years ago. Uh, Thirty. What is it now? Thirty some. Thirty two years ago. You're right. I'm freaking. Uh, outstanding. Um, what it did was soccer led me to broadcasting, and. In high school, I was a, a soccer goalkeeper. I was, I was rather rather round for most of my life. I was obese for most of my life, but I was able to overcome that and be a pretty good goalkeeper. But in high school, when things start to change and you hit your growth spurt and all that other stuff, and you lose that weight, that didn't happen for me. And I got injured. I hurt my knee. And uh, as you guys know, um, you're either going to be really good and go to college and 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 do something uh, really you know uh really great or you're going to go find a job and i'm a sophomore in high school and i don't know what i'm going to do i have no idea and um basically what happened was i was sitting in my history uh, class and i figured well if i can't play sports i need to be close to sports and at that time we didn't have any broadcast or tv broadcast studios and in high school and we had a, a journalism class and I went over to my uh, counselor and I said, I know what I want to do. And I said, put me in the journalism class, I'm going to be a sports writer. And for my final two years of high school, I was the you know, the sports editor of the newspaper and had my own column and I talked some trash. And, and I learned the journalism trade from high school and moved on from there. And I thought I was going to be a sports writer, but uh, I wasn't getting the answers that I wanted after high school out uh, of either uh, community college or San Diego State University. Uh, they both had pretty good journalism schools, but I saw a broadcasting school commercial um, on television at my parents' house, and I decided, you know, I'm watching sports, and I kind of see the, the plays develop, whether it's football or soccer, and I, you know, and my voice kind of projects, maybe I can do that. Okay. So I called the school, and, and it was Columbia School of Broadcasting, it was a national school at the time, and it was based out of Los Angeles, and we ended up having a satellite campus here in San Diego. And the director of the school here in San Diego happened to be a friend of my brother's. I had no idea. But when I met him, his name is Freddie Carini. And uh, that, you know, got me into it. it. And those are the type of schools, they'll take your money. You better, you better get it done. Right, right. And uh, light, light a fire, right? Light a fire under your butt. And that's what I did. And uh, got into a news station here in San Diego. I was the morning news producer. Uh, the owner of the station wanted to make it all sports. At that time, it was WFAN as really the only sports station. There was another station in Toronto, KFN, the fan in Toronto. And sure enough, we were the next ones to become all sports in the United States. And it was uh, at that time, was the Mighty 690, all sports radio. And then we turned to Extra Sports 690. And the great thing about our station was that we all had journalistic backgrounds. Uh, we went from a news station to a sports station, and uh, everybody was young. We worked our tails off. We worked 14, 16 hours a day, and we loved it. And we never complained about making no money at all. And uh, basically, in February, February of '91, I was teamed with a guy named Jim Rome, and we built the Jim Rome Show. He and I, and uh, we made it a national show. Uh, it's still going today. We worked together for five years, and. Uh, we made names for our, ourselves. Jim wanted to be a national talk show host. I became the executive, uh, the executive producer of the station at the time, and I was on the air. And I started to do play-by-play. At that time, we had an indoor league. We didn't have an outdoor league, and I was doing play-by-play for a team in Anaheim. And you know, when we came to the point of having to sell the show. Uh, we had to make a decision of whether I was going to go with the show and go live in Los Angeles and continue to be the producer of the show and give up my aspirations of being a play-by-play announcer or stay in San Diego, run the sports station, and continue to do my play-by-play and build my on-air career. And the decision was made at that time that we would split. Jim, of course, is immensely successful. And and I've been chipping away and, and doing the things that I love.
0: Exactly. And I think when you find what you love and you cherish that, you'll always be happy at the end of the day. A lot of these people nowadays, you know, they're afraid of making that commitment to going into your field because like you said, going off, going to start, the money is not great. And a lot of people get this way by that and discouraged. But you know, if you want something and you truly love it, you won't be looking at that kind of stuff. You know, maybe down the line it will be a concern, but I think when it's down the line, you will be, financially steady at that point you would get to where you need to be hopefully hopefully it's not the case for everybody but I, I love hearing your story because not a lot of people know about that industry the in-betweens like you said you had to part ways with with one of your partners you know it's something that you literally built from the foundation up so that's not easy to part ways with something especially working
1: on it for what five years you said yeah we're pretty proud of it because at that time uh you know sports radio was still evolving and we really created something uh, that really made sports radio successful. And especially on the West Coast, where we have a lot of transplants, and we could not do sports radio like WFAN or like uh, any other, other stations on the East Coast that talk just about their cities because everybody out here is from everywhere else and they like their Cubs and they like their Yankees and they like the Red Sox. And uh, we had to incorporate that. We had to be national sports radio for Southern California. And luckily, we had this massive signal that went from San Diego all the way up the West coast and uh, to the California Nevada border. And we were able to really, with this umbrella, bring everybody in and do something very special, not only with that show, but also across the board. And, and our station had to be, you know, was the home of the chargers. Uh, We were the home of the UCLA Bruins. We were the home of the LA Kings when Gretzky was with the Kings. So we had a lot, we had a lot going on and uh, we were just in the right place at the right time. And, Today, it's different. Today, you know, sports radio has changed. It's transitioned. Radio itself has tr- transitioned into, you know, podcasting, into this, what we're doing today, you know, video logs, so to speak. Uh, and so you have to be, you have to have your head on a swivel today to do a lot of different things and, and try to continue to be successful and make a name for yourself. And, and it's a lot of Dow Jonesing going on right now in our business before it settles down. And we figure out how to get from here to there and, and continue to be, you know, and to have integrity on the air. There's a lot of there's a lot of junk out there right now that tends to get people's attention. Yeah. Um, but sure. those are short lived things. And to be to be legacy, you have to continue to stay within yourself, in my opinion, and, and have credibility and, and not waver from that.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of questions for you, but I feel like you explained it very thoroughly throughout the past, you know, five minutes or so. And I think it's great for people looking to get into this field to become more knowledgeable in these things. And I think that you really hit the nail on the head. But uh, let, let's jump into the MLS now. Let's transition to where your specialty is right now, you know, announcing for the LA Galaxy. W- what's that like, man? You know, you got to tell us what, what's the feelings going in to each matchup every day, play by play, you know, you and your co-host again, the job done. But wh- How – as an Italian-American, it's great seeing a fellow Italian-American handling the mic, doing his thing out there. But you speak for yourself, man. What is going through your head when you're, when you're doing all that?
1: Well, it's a dream come true. I mean, uh, to me, I, I'm one of the early birds. I love to get to the stadium early. I like to have the whole day come to me. And um, so when we're on television, Kobe Jones uh, does the games with me on television. And uh, when we're there, I, it's, it's interesting because I broadcast all of Kobe's games with the LA Galaxy. And, and now he's next to me. And, uh, and I get a different perspective. You know, the guy that I used to broadcast games for, who I thought was a certain way, to the guy that I know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and on radio, Kobe does home games with me in a way, uh, radio. Kevin Hartman, the former goalkeeper there, uh, is, is my guy in the booth with me. So. It's an interesting thing to get to know these guys in a different way and to be able to make the connection with them in terms of mentally, how they see the game compared to somebody who didn't play it professionally, how I see the game. Right. So that's that's the great thing about that. Um, in terms of being able to broadcast soccer, I I've spent an entire career um, going out of my way for, for, for the sport of soccer. I mean, I was the executive producer of the Chargers broadcast. I built the uh, San Diego Padres broadcast on radio for the stations I worked for. I was doing all that stuff. My love is soccer. And uh, yeah, I played the game, and and I wanted to broadcast the game. Early on in my career, we had no outdoor league. We had an indoor league that was falling apart every two days. If your team didn't win, they probably would fold. So, So I'm basically hanging on in the early part of my career. And for me to be able to do it now, where a lot of be- – people believe Major League Soccer is on their way. I don't take that for granted at all. So I still do things the way I did things when I got into this league and in this sport. I mean, I believe in fundamentals, and I believe in getting there early. I believe in letting the game come to you. I, I love working with my producers and the directors and, and anybody's with a stagehand, getting to know them, see what they're all about, and making sure that they're all at ease because once the game gets underway, you know, I have to lead the way. And, yep. and if everybody as long as I can keep everybody at ease, we'll deliver the game, and we'll have a good game and uh, we've done some games that are difficult to pull off. I mean, we've had situations in Canada where our transmission is down right until the start of kickoff, whether we we didn't know we had video, but we had audio and I, and I'll tell a director who was stuck back in l a said, "Don't worry about it, we'll take care of it just just keep us on the air and we'll take care of it, and we'll get it done but you know, through all this, we've seen a league grow up. We've seen a sport grow up in this country. Um, you know, there's some people that still love the old NASL, and, and we had great players there in the NASL, and I grew up watching the NASL, and that's where my passion came from. But uh, looking at Major League Soccer, that's a whole different animal now today, and we have American players who can play. We have players from South America that are incredible, and Central America that are incredible, and we're getting players here from Europe, that still have meat on the bone and are contributing today at this version of major league soccer. And we're just getting better and better and better. And we're seeing the U S men's national team now bounce back and go back into under under the front foot and look like they're going to be doing some damage here going forward. And and we're in a good time. The unfortunate thing is we're all stuck at home and we can't really do everything we want to do uh, to engage in our sport and in our career. Sure. To take it to the next level. So we're all in a kind of this this holding pattern, like you're an airplane waiting, you know, waiting to land, and it's a little frustrating. Definitely
0: frustrating, you know, with everything going on in today's world, it's hard to imagine what some people are going through, you know, on and off the pitch. So it's a oh, yeah. lot. It's a lot of issues going on, but we got to keep going on, keep pushing, keep remaining strong, and keep doing our thing. You know, somebody like you, who's passionate on this, will always find a way. And I would love to like, you know, be in the industry with you because you sound so relaxing to work with. You don't sound like somebody who's going to jump down your throat. You sound like somebody super chill, and I like that. You make everybody feel comfortable. And with somebody like you, it makes it, like you said, everybody's at ease getting the
1: job done. Mm-hmm. So, you
0: know, it's, it's
1: cool to Early on in my career, I was pretty intense. Let's put it that way. I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I getting, I'm sure the nickname of Bulldog for a reason because I was pretty intense and relentless in getting things done. And, and um, you know, part of that is still in me. Uh, but i you know you learn along the way to right, you know right. to to where where you're going to push and and you learn about people and how you know put them in the proper positions to where they they can succeed
0: yeah for sure for sure and i think that you learn that over the years as well and just become yeah. more of a leader but um brings me to the next point about the mls you know i think it's growing within the past 10 years especially uh i paid a lot more attention to it um, it's weird because here in New York we have the Red Bull and the mm-hmm. NYCFC, so it's like I <laughs> uh, originally was a Red Bull fan, and NYCFC came here, so it's like, what do you do at that point? But it was great seeing Pirlo play for NYCFC. You know, we have Jovinko who was in Toronto, uh, and then of course you had the pleasure of announcing Zlatan and David sure. Beckham. You know, that's like two legendary players. But in terms of MLS, you know, like why is Why is it the constant perception that the MLS is bad? Why is there that perception?
1: Well, I think that, you know the unfortunate thing is people look at the United States and they don't look at the u s. as being a soccer country at this point. They think it you know it's basketball, baseball, you know football, American football, and uh, and so and so that's already the perception that we have. And frankly, you know our best finish of the World Cup was in uh, you know, the quarterfinals. You know, and, and some people will, will, you know, I'll go back and say, hey, probably outplayed Germany, deserved a handball uh, and a ball that was in the net that was never called a goal and, and it could have been different. But having said that, you know, we cycled. We cy- You know, after 2002, we had a terrible performance in 2006. Uh, we did a little better in 2010. We changed our coach and we went a different direction there. And uh, we did about the same in fourteen, And then we had this huge disappointment. Uh, embarrassment uh, of not making it in on the final day with the, with the loss to TNT. So we have things that we need to overcome. Uh, It bothers me that people look at our country as not being a soccer nation or ruffle their nose at the United States. It does bother me uh, because I'm inside that bubble and, and I'm working at it. And I, and I can say, Hey, yeah, we are a soccer nation. We have, we have great players. We have great Americans that are now playing abroad and doing good things. Abroad, as opposed to rotting on benches, but we have to really succeed on the men's side at the international level, and we have to become a part of power. We have to become a team that is not just difficult to play against, because that's been the case all the time with the Americans, dating back to you know my youth in the late '70s and '80s. Yeah, Americans are going to play hard; they're going to be tough to play against. But sophistication in our game that hasn't been there uh, for. You know, most of this time, outside of certain moments, you know, Landon Donovan and, and that group there in 2002 was surprised everybody. And I, I'll be honest, even surprised me being, a you know, a fan of those guys to see them, to make the run they made. Um, yeah, but, you know, we have to do that. Americans have to do that. World Cup in, World Cup out. We have to be the top of CONCACAF once again. Mexico right now is that. Right. Um, I think we've closed the gap. I think our style of play is good enough to where we're going to share in those victories, and uh, and hopefully our Olympic team, which I was speaking in another group the other day, and Olympic soccer isn't that important outside the United States, or maybe even outside this hemisphere uh, when it comes to men's soccer. Um, but for the United States, it's very important for us on the men's game because it gives our guys a chance to grow and uh, and and continue to be better at younger ages, whereas you know, our competition at that level has not been good enough yes. to develop our players, and now we're now we're getting there. We're getting there. We're finally getting yeah. traction.
0: Yeah. So, Joe, you think it starts at the national team level? Like, if they do well, it'll just translate over to the MLS. You think there's a correlation there?
1: Well, I think the perception around the world is at the national team level. Right. Um, not too many eyes watch our sport, whether it's time differences or whatever. Uh, Zlatan brought a lot of eyes to our sport. Pirlo brought some eyes to our sport. Uh, David Villa did as well. Thierry Henry did as well. Uh, David Beckham certainly brought a lot of eyes to our sport when he came to the United States. But, you know, what what we're talking about, I think, for us is having the United States national team do well on a regular basis on the men's side. Competition at every position where you have a hard time feeling that the 23 players on the roster and to a point where those players then go off and be successful in other leagues around the, uni- uh, around the world, especially in Europe, where, of course, that's, that's the gold standard there. So that's, that's the important part. Now, creating those players, that starts at age 10 and 12, where, again, we've had, you know, prodigies along the way, you know, but we have to have a group of young players that have the acumen uh, and the physicality. To to play at the top level. So in other words, our fruit, our fruit is ready to pick at harvest at age seventeen and eighteen, and for too long in our country it has been at age twenty two, twenty and twenty two. That's too late.
0: Yeah, no, I agree because my cousins in Italy, uh, they played in Serie A D, Division D, in uh, in soccer in Italy. You know, there's multiple divisions in Italy. It's crazy how many there are. A, B, C, D, and then it goes like D2, D3. You know, there's so many. But my cousins played there, and they were scouted and recruited at the age of 12. You know, so they're getting on it quick. I know Spain's even quicker. Argentina's even earlier. It's just there's constant scouts checking them out. And I just don't know why we're not on top of that yet. You know, like you said, we don't have those – I don't know what exactly it is, but we're just not starting young enough. You know, years ago, 22, like you said, but now we're getting a little younger. So I think
1: we're heading in the right direction. I think we're there. I think now we do have the framework in place. Um, I think we're getting that. I think the players we're seeing in Europe, going to Europe, even at younger ages. I mean, Pulisic was a teenager when he went over there. Uh, You know, we're talking about, what, 15, 16 years old. And we're seeing players starting to make their way over. So – that's not a bad thing. We just need more and more of them, and at younger ages. I think growing up in that environment here in Southern California, and just how I look back at it now, soccer in this country has been a lot of different, a lot of little tribes. So, in other words, you're a, a director of a club. Name your club. Let's let's call it Spurs. You know, okay. whatever youth club Spurs. For the sake of argument, that person was making a pretty good amount of money, and he had maybe. U-12s through U-16 or whatever it might be. And that guy might be also the head coach of the local high school, show, uh, uh, high school soccer team, or maybe it's the parochial school there. So he's kind of recruiting the best players. And, but that tribe would never want to interact with the soccer community. Don't mess with my business. And for too long in this country, I would say through the decade of the 80s and most of the 90s, we had that mentality among the soccer community in this country. Um, I I was the marketing director for a soccer team for a few years and it was an indoor team. So I was doing a bunch of different things at the same time. And I met with them uh, all together at one point and they were just wondering, Hey, what are you going to do for us? And I said, well, if we don't succeed, we can't help you. We can't help you. You know, we, we can't help you if we don't succeed. So we're asking you, we'll, we'll give you, you know, Two for one tickets, this, that, the other, but we're asking you to get engage so we can engage. And it was it was kind of the other way around for a long time. Now with Major League Soccer's strength that it has today, it's it's got its own academies. It is picking the the cream of the crop. It, it's I'm sure they will continue to work on their scouting of of players and so forth because that's never ending. And and sometimes there are players that do you know fall through the cracks. And we've seen a few of those guys that are either Mexican-Americans uh, or even Italian-Americans, Giuseppe Rossi, who fell through the cracks for us and, and got away on the East Coast. But then again, he also had that passion that he wanted to play for, it, for Italy and, and do that for his father. And you can understand that as well. Um, and we're going to have a few of those guys along the way. So I think we're, we're light years ahead of where we were. Uh, I think we still have work to do, but but everybody has work to do. I mean, England thinks they win the World Cup every time, but they haven't done anything since the 60s.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Mm-hmm. I feel like that happens every World Cup. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I, I do feel very confident, especially after speaking with you, for what the future has for MLS and for the USA national team. Really exciting. And I know the women's national team definitely, you know, sets the standards ah, for yeah. the rest of us. So they're doing a great job. You know, they're killing it. They're on fire lately. So, you know, it, it leads me to my next point, back to the broadcasting aspects. Uh, before we wrap things up, I want you to just talk about, like, some, not even some of them. Give me your most memorable moment
1: behind the screen. Mm. Well, I it's, mean, it always goes back to the the first <laughs> championship for the Galaxy in 2002. You know, that was probably the one, only because of the fact that the club had, had failed on previous, uh what was it, 96, 98, didn't make the final. 99 we were in the final, lost to D.C. 2001 we're in the final, lost in overtime. So 2002, a- and that one winning on golden goal uh, was incredible. I kind of lost my mind on that call. I was doing the radio call for that I one. Gotta listen to that. Camera, I got on to play TV. that back. I wish somebody <laughs> had a recording of it to see your reaction. <laughs> so just, it went nuts on that. And then my broadcast partner, you guys would know, or if not you, your your parents would know Rick Davis. Who yeah. played for the Cosmos was my broadcast partner back then. He's laughing because he, you know, I'm a young guy, and in 20 what was it? What was I? Ah, what was it in 2002? I was 32 years old, so I, you know that was that was the, the pinnacle at the time for me. Right. But you know, th- there's a few. David Beckham's first game was an ex uh, was an exhibition, was a friendly. Chelsea was in town, and the stadium was jammed. Um, another friendly where the Galaxy played against uh, Barcelona, ninety two thousand. At the Rose Bowl, and David hits on a 25-yard strike uh, for a goal. Um, and Thierry Henry and Messi are together for Barcelona at the time. And there was a, there was a sequence in that match that I don't think the Galaxy touched the ball for 10 minutes. <laughs> it was what Barcelona was doing, it was just incredible. And uh, you know the first the first, uh, the first um, what was it the uh, the Champions Cup the first two Champions Cups Galaxy were in, and and the Galaxy get a win. Against Juventus and the defender uh, Omar Gonzalez scoring the game-winning goal in that particular game, we're doing it at a Dodger Stadium, and I, I'm broadcasting in the booth uh, that uh, you know Vin Scully broadcast from. Uh, that was incredible for me. Um, you know Zlatan's 500th goal uh, was amazing. All of his goals seemed to be some type of a highlight He's special goal. So special. Um, you know Landon Donovan's record-breaking goal at the time. Um, I got to call Landon Donovan's first international goal when he played for the U.S. national team. It was a a game that the USA was playing against Mexico in the Gold Cup uh, at the Coliseum. And I'll give you a perspective. I'm an American broadcaster. There's no broadcast for this game on television that you can pick up on ESPN or anything else. It was closed-circuit pay-per-view in English. Uh, Rick Davis and I are doing the game. It's at the Coliseum in Los Angeles and the American broadcasters are not in a broadcast booth because there's no room for us. We're on the opposite side in a camera well, and with, uh, with, uh, make, bottles being uh, thrown at us. You can't make- and, uh, that's how it was. And that's, you know, and we've come a long way. And I know a lot of the young generation says, what are you talking about? We should be a lot better. Well, maybe, but you got to remember where we're coming from too. Yeah. So those, those are, those are a few of the things. And, and, you know, I think if I talk even more, I can come up with more. But yeah, there's not really one. I mean, there's there's really not one. You know, there there are there are great moments, and you just hope they come more and more along the way.
0: I respect that for sure. And I think what helped the MLS a lot, especially with me piquing interest, was is when teams
1: overseas would
0: play exhibitions with teams here. For example, Juventus yeah. and uh, Milan. You know, all the big yeah. Italian clubs would come here to play uh, in New York and whatnot and Florida, Orlando,
1: sure.
0: and, you know, that to me was a chance for me to go see them, see my, some of my favorite players in the world, but not only that, support an MLS team at the same time. So it kind of right. went hand-in-hand hand for me especially. So this whole COVID situation needs to go away. We need to bring all that back because I'm very excited for that. But, Hopefully. Joe, before we go, I have one last thing for you, and then we'll wrap up. Um, world Cup time, I, I think I already know your answer. Italy's versus USA, who
1: are we going with? For me, for me, only because I know that in Italy, if I go to Italy, I'm an American. <laughs> they, will, they will call me an American, no matter what, even though that's I speak right, right. our version of Sicilian here in the United States. They, you know, So I'm an American. I, you know, if, if Italy's playing anybody else, of course, I'll, I'll go grab my Italy jersey. But if it's United States and Italy, I, I, I will be for the United States.
0: I hear that. I hear that. I respect that. I respect that. But Joe, listen, it was a true pleasure having you on. Thank you for you know sending out some time to speak with us. Hopefully some people, you know, get a chance to look into you, get get to know a little bit more about you if they don't already, and you know, about the whole industry and how times are changing, even though we live in a mad world right now. So Joe, yeah, we do appreciate it, man.
1: Well, well, first of all, thank you very much. I know, I know the audience you have. I, I feel like I'm at home. So thank you for watching, whoever is watching today. Uh, thank you for doing that. Uh, and, and lastly, I hope everybody can get back to being kind to each other uh, and, and lift each other up, because that's what we have to do. We have too much anger going on out there, uh, especially across social media. What I see on social media is not happening in the streets. And we got to also make sure we understand that and work with each other and make sure we get from here to there.
0: I couldn't agree more with what you just said. Joe Tutino, everybody, LA Galaxy announcer. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure.